Holy Spirit, that he might be active today uh, in our two sessions of teaching and all of the different teachings right down to youth and nursery that are going to take place at this church today. I pray you'll be with us during the fellowship meal and the communion service. And in preparation for all of those things, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal business with you in terms of confessing sin and or sins, not to restore our position, which is eternally secure, but hindered fellowship. And we do this so that we can receive from your word and your spirit unhindered today. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and how you've made provision for us for all things. So we ask that you'll be with us today in both Sunday school and the main service, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Well, good morning. Happy uh, first Sunday in August. you're enjoying all the cool weather. And uh, let's take our Bibles this morning and go to Jeremiah chapter 49, um, starting off here with verses 34 through 39. And as you know, we've completed our verse-by-verse teaching on the Middle East meltdown Ezekiel chapters 36 through 39, and from there we moved into Q&A, questions and answers that people have submitted, and there was a whole bunch of questions that came in, and so I thought I would deal with this in one uh, lump sum, so to speak, on the so-called uh, now prophecies, near prophecies, next prophecies, first prophecies. And basically what people mean today by these kinds of prophecies is, yeah, we, we enjoyed the teaching on Ezekiel 38 and 39, but goodness, you missed a whole bunch of stuff. Because the Middle East scenario is a lot more exciting than the way you've portrayed it. I think what we've talked about is pretty exciting. Amen. But there's a mindset out there that there's a lot more that Ezekiel 38 and 39 doesn't talk about. And it has to do with the prophecies that supposedly are going to happen, you know, within the next split second that predates or occurs before Ezekiel 38 and 39. And these are the prophecies dealing with Elam, the prophecies dealing with Damascus, and then there is the Psalm 83 war. So the question is as follows, what is your understanding of the first, near, now, or next prophecies um, 
of Elam, Damascus, and Psalm 83. And so essentially what's happening is because the Middle East uh, scenario is crystallizing, just as the Bible says, there is a big movement within prophecy circles to go outside of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and to, to look at these other prophecies, which also contribute to the last day's scenario. And people essentially are saying, you know, these are things that have to happen before the Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Probably the best treatment on these that I've ever seen, and so I'm going to be drawing my material largely from this, is Mark Hitchcock's book, Showdown with Iran. So he would agree with everything, I think, for the most part anyway, that we've said about Iran in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but he also noticed this trend amongst prophecy teachers and conference speakers that there are these other prophecies. And so in Appendix 1 and Appendix 2, this is where it pays to read the appendices of books, which you guys don't have time to do, amen? But this is why I get paid the big bucks to read stuff like this. Um, this is where it pays to read appendices of books because he deals in, in a manner that's very thorough, very fair, very biblical with these alleged next near type prophecies. And so one of the things I like to put up when we get into this subject is um, a quote from the late Dr. Charles Ryrie who said eschatology, that's the study of the end, uh, that's what we're into here as we've looked at Ezekiel 36 through 39, seems to suffer at the hands of both. So he's going to mention two groups here. Both its friends and its foes. Those who play it down, that would be the foes, assigning specific meaning to prophetic texts, Those who play it up, that's its friends, assign too much. So when you get into this subject of biblical eschatology, what the Bible says about the end, what you'll see right away is there's two groups of people that have a tendency to go outside the Bible. The first group, if you paid attention to what we've taught in this series and other series, you know very well, those are the allegorists. Those are people that say these prophecies are not literal. Um, They typically come from the camp of reform theology or covenant theology or replacement theology or amillennial theology or postmillennial theology, and they refuse to interpret these prophecies as literally as they would any other section of the Bible. And because they do that, they don't end up in our camp, which is the pre-pre-view. Pre-tribulational. The rapture will occur before the tribulation. And pre-millennial, meaning the kingdom won't manifest until Jesus comes back. So the type of of church that you're in eschatologically is pre-pre. 
but we don't even eat post-toasties for breakfast here at Sugarland Bible Church. Pre-pre, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. And there's a group of people out there that say, ah, you can't believe that because the prophecies aren't literal. And we've spent a lot of time in this series reacting against that group. But there's another group out there that's equally damaging to the study of eschatology, as Charles Ryrie says. And these are people that read too much into the passages. And they get into uh, what I would call speculation or sensationalism based on a newspaper reading of the Bible when the biblical text itself doesn't support their scenario. So these are people not trying to discount prophecy. These are people that many times are well-intentioned. They're very energetic and enthusiastic. Um, They almost are tripping over each other to produce one prophecy or another, which is kind of the latest thing. Um, you remember that Paul on Mars Hill talked about the folks that, you know, they would actually, Luke is the one that talks about them in Acts 17, I think it is. You know, they were kind of sitting around always waiting for the next big thing or they wanted to hear something new. And the truth of the matter is the prophecy world and the prophecy landscape is filled with these kind of individuals. They're very articulate, but very sensationalistic. And you finish listening to their speech or sermon, and then you're looking at the biblical text wondering, boy, that was a wonderful talk he just gave. I'm just not seeing it in the Bible. And so that group also will damage the study of prophecy. Because if you follow that second group to its logical conclusion if they're saying things that aren't found in the biblical text, then the whole subject of eschatology um, gets discredited. It's a lot like when somebody sets a date, which is always a mistake, for some end-time event. Um, every time that happens, it's, it's like what the pro-life movement suffers when a pro-lifer goes into an abortion area and kills somebody. You know, very sadly that's happened. It's happened many times. And every time a pro-lifer goes off, gets unhinged, goes off the rails, kills somebody in the name of trying to stop abortion, the pro-life movement just got set back five years because we lose credibility. And it's the same thing in the prophecy world. Whenever, whenever somebody sets some kind of date and that date comes and goes, then everybody thinks, well, I guess all the, I don't want to get into eschatology. That's what all the lunatics are into. So, uh, that's what Ryrie is saying here is you have to keep your eye on both. And so what I'm doing here with these next, now, near type prophecies is dealing with that second group. And so there are a collection of prophecies that people say are about to happen any second. These are the prophecies dealing with Elam. You'll find those in Jeremiah 49 and Ezekiel 32. These, then there's the so-called prophecies related to Damascus. 
the big one everybody's pushing today is Isaiah 17 and to a lesser extent Jeremiah 49. And then there is a prophetic scenario people are developing as some kind of independent war that precedes and is different than the war in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they are allegedly getting this from Psalm 83. So that's the landscape of what we're going to try to cover um, as we wrap up our series on the Middle East meltdown. In other words, you want to understand the Middle East from the right section of Scripture, not the wrong sections of Scripture. So let's start with Elam, and let's start with Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 34 through 39. And at the outset, I will clearly say that Elam does represent Persia. And if this was some kind of end-time prophecy, then it would be speaking of Iran. Because the name Persia, you can track it through the Bible, it was the empire that released the Jews from the 70-year captivity. As you track it through the Bible into modern-day history, in 1935, the name Persia was changed to Iran. And then in 1979, Iran was Islamicized. My understanding of Iran is it plays a big role in the end times, not from Ezekiel 32, not from Jeremiah 49, but from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now people would hear that and they say, okay, you've only given part of the story. What about the Elam prophecies found in Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 39? So let's go ahead, and I'm just going to read this section to you. It says, That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophecy or the prophet concerning Elam at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to break the bow of Elam, the finest of their might. It will bring, it will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four, en- from the four ends of heaven, and will scatter them to the winds, and there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will not go. So I will shatter Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their lives, and I will bring calamity upon them. Even my fierce anger declares the Lord, and I will send out the sword after them until I have consumed them. Verse 38, then I will set my throne in Elam and and destroy out of its kings and princes, declares the Lord. Now, verse 39 is where they're getting a lot of their information. It says in verse 39, It will come about in the last days that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, uh, declares the Lord. So I'm going to give you some names of people. Um, I don't do this as some kind of smear on their whole ministry, because there's a lot of things that I agree with with these folks. 
But all of these folks that I'm going to quote have something in common. They have all bought into the now, near, or next prophecy mindset. So one of them is someone that I think very highly of. I've read some of his books, Joel Rosenberg, and this is what he says about the passage we just read. He says, we read the prophecy concerning the future judgment and blessed restoration of Elam, modern-day Iran. So far, so good. The judgment is described in verses 35 through 38. Most importantly, we read in verse 38 that the Lord says it will come about in the last days. I will restore the fortunes of Elam. This is critical because it gives us another indication that this is this is an end times prophecy consistent with the previous prophecies. So what he's saying is the last verse deals with the end, and so the whole prophecy deals with the end. So if you want to understand the future of Iran, you can't just read Ezekiel 38 and 39. You also need to read Jeremiah 49 verses 34 through 39. Um, Another guy that is promoting this mindset is a gentleman by the name of Bill Salas, who I know, very likable guy, agree with him on a lot of things. But he is the one that's largely pushing, really to the ultimate extent, these now, near, or next prophecies. So, once again, I quote him, not to try to attack him, but just to show you the mindset that's out there and why I would disagree, we would disagree with some of the things he's saying. Bill Salas says, concerning the prophecy that we just read, at this point, it's important to discuss Iran's double jeopardy in the last days. So apparently there's some kind of independent destruction of Iran coming before the destruction of Iran mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think that's what he means by double jeopardy. Iran, or Iran, I guess is the proper pronunciation, is the subject of dual judgment prophecies. One in Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 39, and the other in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So if you're reading Ezekiel 38 and 39, you only have part of the story. So you need to buy his book, right, to get the full story, because he's going to tell you in that book, as is Joel Rosenberg, that Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 39, is part of that destruction as well. This means, he says, continuing with the quote, that the rogue nation will experience double trouble in the end times. Now, I completely concur that if you look at verse 39 at the very end, that verse hasn't been fulfilled yet. The clue is the last, the reference to the last days. And also, it talks about a restoration of the fortunes of Elam or Persia in the end. Now, how is that restoration going to happen? Well, my understanding of it is when the Lord returns, and you'll see this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, 
there is going to be before him survivors of the tribulation period from the nations, from the ethnos. Now, some of those survivors will be Persian. And the Lord at the sheep and goat judgment is going to make a determination which individuals are sheep, which individuals are goats. The goats will be cast off the earth into Hades. The sheep will enter the millennial kingdom in their non-glorified mortal bodies and begin to repopulate the earth. And some of those that will repopulate the earth in that day will be Persians. And as they repopulate the earth, Persia, the people group Persia, is going to be not only restored in the millennial kingdom amongst many other nations, but because everyone who um, begins the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies is a believer, Persia, among many other people groups, will all be believers. So that's how my understanding is how Persia or Elam is going to be restored in the last days. So I'm seeing verse 39 as a futuristic passage, eschatological. But I do not think that verses 34 through 38 are future. That's the difference of opinion. I believe that verses 34 through verse 38 have already been fulfilled. In other words, the bulk of this passage has nothing to do with the tribulation period. It has to do with something that took place historically. And you start to see some clues to that effect, because if you look at verse 35, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to break the bow of Elam, the finest of their might. And so that is a a passage that speaks of the archery skills of the ancient Elamites. Um, That is sort of a clue right out of the gate that you're not talking about something yet future. You're talking about something that's already happened. Now, when you back up, and this is how you do Bible study, you don't just look at the specific paragraph you're dealing with. You look at the whole context of the whole chapter. When you back up to Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 28 through 33, you'll notice that right before this extended prophecy against Elam that we just read, there's another prophecy against Kedar and Hazor. So whatever you're doing with Kedar and Hazer, context seems to dictate that you can't just do something completely different with the prophecy of Elam. And very, very clearly, the context of Kedar, let me get the names right, Kedar and Hazer, there we go, or Kedar and Hazer, depends on which... uh, Salalable gets the emphasis, as we like to say. Clearly, that's a prophecy that already happened. Um, Look at chapter 49 and look at verse 28. Concerning Kedar and the kingdom of Hazar, which who? What's the next word? 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated. Now, who was Nebuchadnezzar? He was a guy that existed in the 6th century B.C. So you're dealing with something that Nebuchadnezzar did 2,600 years ago. Uh, look, if you will, at verse 30. It says, Run away, flee, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazar, declares the Lord. For, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has formed a plan against you and devised a scheme against you. So this is something that Nebuchadnezzar did to Kedar and Hazar 2,600 years ago. In fact, this whole section is found in Jeremiah's oracles against the nations. And what you'll discover as you go through this section and the Elam prophecy is part of that section. You'll discover that it was actually Nebuchadnezzar that God used to fulfill these prophecies uh, 2,600 years ago. Notice, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 46. And notice, if you will, verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 46 and verse 2. And I apologize to the guys up there in the sound room and the visual camera because I usually get you the verses ahead of time, but we don't have those ahead of time, so just follow me around the best you can. Notice what it says there in chapter 46, verse 2. This is a prophecy against Egypt, and it says to Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated. Uh, notice, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 46 and look at verse 13. This is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, there are many, many prophecies in this section that have already transpired. So if you're suddenly going to tell me that the prophecies of Elam are yet future, you have to demonstrate it textually. Notice, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 46. Look, if you will, at verse 13. This is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. Notice, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 49. Notice, if you will, verses 25 and 26. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 46, verses 25 and 26. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with her gods and her king, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I shall give them over, excuse me, I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of, what's the next word? 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. In other words, these are all sixth century prophecies. I mean, that's uh, the dominant thrust of this section. And what is being taught to us is, oh, well, Elam is yet future. Dr. John Walvoord says this, and I bring up quotes from Walvoord and others to show you that dispensationalists traditionally have not interpreted these prophecies the way the now, next, or near movement is interpreting them. This is something that they're doing that's new. Dr. John Walvoord in his uh, The Nations in Prophecy says a brief Prophecy concerning Kedar and Hazar is contained in Jeremiah 49, 28-33. It is a prediction of judgment upon them at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Then he says a similar judgment. So when we get to Elam, let's not switch horses in midstream. Let's keep the historical context. A similar judgment is pronounced on Elam in Jeremiah 49, verses 34 through 38. Now notice that Walvoord there stops at verse 38. Because verse 39, as we've tried to explain, is something that deals with the distant future in the restoration of Elam in the Millennial Kingdom. But dispensationalists have always looked at these passages, other than the very last verse, as things that have already transpired. Notice, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 49, and take a look, if you could, at verse 38. It says, Then, when Elam is destroyed, in other words, I will set my throne in Elam. Now, when it talks about God setting his throne... In a particular area, that is verbiage indicating that God will supervise the destruction of Elam. Now, how do I know that? Because that verbiage is used elsewhere concerning Egypt in Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 10, which has already been fulfilled. Look at Jeremiah chapter 43 and notice, if you will, verse 10. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to send and get, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, so that puts our context 2,600 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Why does God call Nebuchadnezzar his servant? Because he's using Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment on the surrounding nations in Jeremiah's time period. I'm going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I'm going to look at this. It's the exact same language we just read in verse 38 of chapter 49. I am going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden. So setting a throne is the idea of God supervising the judgment. So when that imagery that we find in Jeremiah 49, verse 38, shows up related to an ancient destruction um, concerning Egypt, then 
you have to say to yourself, well, this is imagery that's already happened. So my point is there's clue after clue after clue in the Jeremiah 49 passage telling you that the destruction of Elam spoken of in that passage has already transpired. Therefore, there's no need to take that passage and turn it into a now passage, a next passage, a near passage, or to somehow give people the impression that if they're just studying Ezekiel 38 and 39, they don't have the whole picture of what God is going to do in the end times. What this movement essentially is doing is taking passages that have been historically understood as by dispensationalists as having already occurred, and now because they fit a newspaper reading of the Bible, let's convert those into futuristic passages. There's not more of a traditional Bible interpreter than Warren Wearsby. Would you agree with me on that? And uh, Warren Wearsby concerning Jeremiah, let's see, where was it? Um, 43 verse 10. And when that same language shows up in chapter 49, setting a throne, Warren Wearsby says, whenever a nation was defeated, the victors would set up their king's thrones in the city gate. He gives a bunch of verses in Jeremiah to demonstrate that. And that's what God promised to do in Elam. He would let them know that he was the king. So my point is there's imagery in Jeremiah 49 that is used by the prophet Jeremiah himself of past destructions. So you put all of this data together and you have to conclude that traditional dispensationalism has had this right. Jeremiah 49 is not a now prophecy. It's not a near prophecy. It's not a next prophecy. It's not something that God is going to do any second where he's going to rain judgment down on Iran. If you want to study Iran in the last days, you're in the wrong section of Scripture. You ought to be in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to study that. There's no need to take a historically past prophecy, particularly when the language over and over again is used by the prophets themselves to describe something past and convert such prophecy into an end times prophecy. So with that being said, let me take you to another prophecy that they use. It's in Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25. So what they'll say is the whole story is not concerning the end of Elam. It's not in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I mean, that's just kindergarten stuff. I mean, if you really want to graduate to the highest level of their understanding, you also got to factor in Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25, which, like Jeremiah 49, is another prophecy against Elam. It says there, Elam is there, and all her hordes around her grave, all of them slain and fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror. I mean, that's got to be talking about 
Iran, right? The number one sponsor of terror in the world. It says it right there in the Bible. Still their terror. In the land of the living and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. Verse 25. They made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are around it. They are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror, oh my goodness, Islamic terror is mentioned twice here, coming from Elam or Persia or Iran, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. They were put in the midst of the slain. Now, do you realize how easy it is to write a book and grab a passage that has Elam and terror mentioned twice in the passage in just a couple of verses and put it in your book as a pretext for a prophecy about Iranian terror? Iran, the number one sponsor of terror in the world. I mean, it's very easy to do that. And your average person reading the book would never look at the context because who has time for that? I just want to learn something exciting about the imminent destruction of Iran. And so this particular verse is used as one of those near, next, or now prophecies. Here's Bill Salas again using these verses, Ezekiel 32 Verses 24 and 25. He says, Ezekiel connects more prophetic dots. I mean, don't you want the dots connected? I mean, you don't just want Ezekiel 38 and 39. Everybody knows that. You need to come to our conference and get these dots connected. Because you want to be an insider, right? Ezekiel connects more prophetic dots by acknowledging that Elam is, is, is guilty of causing terror in the land of the living. The prophet also mentions this fact two times in these verses. Iran, and here we go into current events, Iran is notably the world's foremost sponsor of international terror. So what is Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25 about? It is about Iran as the world's foremost sponsor of international terror. And of course it is, because terror in the land of the living is mentioned twice in the passage. And your average person would read that in a book and look no further and feel like, oh my goodness, I've just been given the inside scoop. The problem is Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25, like the prophecy at the end of Jeremiah 49, has already happened. The terror in the land of the living is also used in Ezekiel's same context. What's, what are the rules of real estate? Location, location, location. What are the rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. You resolve 99% of interpretive errors in the Bible in any area simply by looking at the context. So terror in the land of the living is also used in context for historical nations. Look at Ezekiel 32 and look at verse 23. 
So you don't just read Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25. Look at Ezekiel 32 and look at verse 23. Now, who is this prophecy about? It's about Assyria. How do we know that? Because in verse 22, you'll see the word Assyria. And then, well, I'll just go ahead and read verse 32. It says, Assyria is there and all her company. Her graves are round about her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. This is a prophecy about Assyria. Assyria is long gone. This is historical. And then you look at verse 23, and it says, Whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain and fallen by the sword, who spread the, what's the next word? Terror in the land of the living. Now, nobody takes terror in the land of the living as some kind of end times prophecy about terrorism. Because everybody understands that that verse was fulfilled long ago concerning Assyria. So how can you turn around in the very next verse and take the identical phrase and suddenly make that some sort of prophecy about Iranian terror? Uh, look, if you could, at Ezekiel 32 and look at verse 26. Right after our prophecy here. Meshach and Tubal. Now, I understand that Meshach and Tubal in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Modern day Turkey have a role to play in the end times, but not here in Ezekiel 32. As I'll show you in a minute. Meshach and Tubal and all their hordes are there. Their graves surround them. All of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their, what's the next expression? Terror in the land of the living. Now, nobody takes that prophecy as some kind of end times prophecy about terrorism. But suddenly, in the very same context, in verses 24 and 25, because today Iran is the number one sponsor of terror in the world, that becomes a very convenient passage to turn that into some kind of prophecy about Iranian terror in the last days. Do you, do you follow how inconsistently these folks are in the treatment of the Bible to get the Bible to support a preconceived scenario? That sounds very, very interesting, very, very sensationalistic, and quite frankly, will get you invited to a lot of places to speak, and it will sell a lot of books. No one's going to buy my book because my book would say this already happened. And who wants to hear that? That is boring. But it's biblical, right? And I'm a little bit more afraid of God than I am of people who might not think my message is popular. At some point, you got to figure out who you're going to follow the dictates and the interests of man and the population, the popularity curves and what's trending? Or are you going to follow what God says? And what they're doing with this prophecy concerning terror in the land uh, and how they're inconsistently using it 
the text itself is not supporting what it is they are convincing people that it says. Let me give you uh, one other here. This has to do with the ancient Sidonians. Notice Ezekiel 32 and verse 30. The Sidonians are long gone. This is something that already happened. And it says, There also the chiefs of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians, who in spite of the, what's the next word? Terror resulting from their might in shame went down with the slain etc 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 in other words this expression terror in the land terror in the land terror in the land which they're trying to make a futuristic prophecy about Iranian terrorism when you track that expression in the same book in the same chapter by the same prophet you'll see that identical expression is used to describe historical happenstances So that expression in and of itself is insufficient to convert Ezekiel 32 verses 24 and 25 into some sort of futuristic prophecy uh, concerning Iran. So what is the broader context of Ezekiel 32? The broader context of Ezekiel 32 is Egypt. And what it's saying in Ezekiel 32 is Egypt will be brought down and Pharaoh of Egypt will be killed. And when Pharaoh of Egypt is killed, he will enter the next world. He will enter the, some call it the the netherworld. And when he gets into the netherworld, what's he going to see? He's going to see all of the other like-minded nations that were similarly brought down. When Pharaoh of Egypt gets into the netherworld, he's going to see other leaders like Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Ubal, Edom, and Sidon. That's what Ezekiel 32 is saying. Pharaoh is going down. And when Pharaoh goes down, which happened historically, because the soul is eternal, he's going to move into the next world, and he's going to see right there all of his buddies, like-minded nations. Dr. John Walvoord, in his excellent book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, this is why I send you to resources like this. I don't want you to waste your time with cotton candy, which will give you a sugar rush, but it's not the meat and potatoes that you need to be sustained as a Christian. John Walvoord, in his excellent book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, says this concerning Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and, let's see, verses 24 and 25, and Jeremiah, which we studied earlier, verses 34 through 39. He says other nations such as Elam would be in Sheol. They were a people who settled east of Babylon and were later absorbed by the Persian Empire. So he's talking about our prophecies concerning Elam that we're dissecting here. They were conquered both by Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar. 
The thought of their dying with the uncircumcised, a disgraceful death, is mentioned frequently in the passage. Meshach and Tubal, their leadership is in Hades. Referring to a, uh, excuse me, referring to a people probably originally living in the area north of Turkey. They later became the subject of a prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. God has a future for Meshach and Tubal. Not on the basis of Ezekiel 32, but on the basis of Ezekiel 38 and 39. In addition, he says, to all people mentioned, Pharaoh would join them in Sheol. Also, there would be the Sidonians, as described as all the princesses of the north, probably located north of Egypt. The concluding prophecies that was that Pharaoh and his army would be there as well, having been killed by the swords. This was fulfilled, this destruction of Egypt, was fulfilled in 663 and 571 B.C. historically. What all of Ezekiel 32, which contains the Elam prophecy, says is Pharaoh is going to be taken down. We know that Ezekiel's prophecy historically concerning Egypt was fulfilled in 663 B.C. and 571 B.C. And when Pharaoh, because the soul is eternal, goes into the next world, he's going to see Elamite leadership there, Meshach and Tubal leadership there, etc., 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 Now, since you know the whole context of Ezekiel 32, do you see how completely and totally insane it is to make the prophecy about Elam something totally future that wouldn't be fulfilled for 2,000 years? Because I see the word terror in it. I mean, you have to completely mutilate, rip out of context, butcher the passage, Because that's not what the passage says. When Pharaoh goes down, which he will, Ezekiel says, which historically happened, he's going to move into the next world and he's going to see the leadership of Elam in that place of judgment with him. So if you don't know that context, you can't understand the insanity of taking just those two verses because the word terror appears twice and making it some sort of futuristic prophecy about Iran. That's what this now, next, near prophecy movement is doing. And I think that they are doing as much injury to the Bible as is any replacement theologian who allegorizes everything. And that's a distortion of the Bible. And to rip things out of context to support something sensational is a different kind of distortion of the Bible, but it's equally injurious to proper Bible study method. Mark Hitchcock gets it completely and totally right here concerning Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25. He says in one of those appendices at the back, which you haven't read yet, Because who has time to read appendices at the back of a book? 
only egghead types like myself would read something like that. He says, in this setting, Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25, hey, let's not look at these two verses. Let's look at the whole chapter. What a thought. Because words only have meanings from the context that they arise from, right? If if people won't respect that, they can make the Bible sound any way they want. Like Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. What you do, do quickly. There it is. I've proven it from the Bible. The Bible promotes suicide. So everybody after church, let's get some of that Jim Jones grape juice and let's suck it down. Um, Because it's in the Bible. Well, it's not in the Bible. You just took the Bible out of context. By the way, Satan... When he tested Jesus, remember, quoted Psalm 91. You'll find it in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13. He took Psalm 91 totally out of context and made it sound like Jesus should intentionally put himself in harm's way to test the hand of God which is why Jesus responded, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Satan mishandled Psalm 91. That's what people do with the Bible all of the time. Now, sometimes the people that do it are on our side prophetically. They're well-intentioned, but they're just going further than what the Scripture says. So that's why when Mark Hitchcock says in this setting, Ezekiel 32, what he's saying there is actually a big deal. In this setting, Ezekiel unmistakably referring to defeated Elamites in his own day were already in the grave, waiting for the arrival of the ancient Egyptians. Ezekiel's reference to the Elamite soldiers who had already died, precludes this prophecy. What prophecy? Ezekiel 32, verses 24 and 25. Precludes this prophecy from finding its fulfillment in the end days. How could modern Iranian soldiers be waiting in the underworld for the Egyptians who were destroyed more than two and a half millennia ago. This simply does not make sense, close quote. Now, don't get me wrong. Elam, later called Persia, later called Iran, is prophetically significant. Persia is mentioned in the names of the attackers found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm not denying the fact that Iran is prophetically significant. It is highly prophetically significant. In fact, Persia or Iran, as we have studied, is one of the invaders along with Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and Gomer to invade the land of Israel in the last days. But the reason that Persia is prophetically significant is from Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
there's enough in Ezekiel 38 and 39 to show you that Iran is a big deal in the last days. Not because of something ripped out of context from Ezekiel 32. So if you want to be excited about oh my goodness, look what Iran is doing today. Look at how close they are to getting their hands on nuclear weapons. Um, that excitement is justified from Ezekiel 38 and 39. It is not justified from Ezekiel 32. For reasons I've tried to explain. So what are these now, next, or near type prophecies? Supposedly we have prophecies yet future concerning Elam. Jeremiah 49 and Ezekiel 32. And there's another collection of prophecies now supposedly concerning Damascus. And the two passages that they're going to for the Damascus prophecies, the big one is in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. And there's another one in Jeremiah 49, verses 23 through 27. So where is Damascus? Damascus is in Syria. Syria is to the north of the nation of Israel, separated only by that mountainous area called the Golan Heights. Um, here's another map showing you where Syria is north of Israel relative to the Golan Heights. And anybody that reads a newspaper can see that Syria, I'm speaking of, is a puppet regime largely being controlled by the big three. Who are the big three? Russia, Iran, and Turkey. There you see the leadership of all three. And those three have a presence in Syria. In fact, the three of them just had a meeting in Tehran concerning their behavior or their actions together in Syria. So here's a fairly recent headline. It says, Putin to meet Erdogan, that's Turkey, Race Rossi, that's Iran, so there's the big three, Putin, Russia, Erdogan, Turkey, uh, Raisi, I think is how you say that, Iran. They're meeting in Iran. This just happened a couple of weeks ago, particularly in Tehran, to discuss Syria. So there are the big three in Syria, which is just to the north of the nation of Israel. And so because that is a modern headline reality, what people in this now, next, or near prophecy movement are doing is they're saying that Isaiah 17 is about to be fulfilled. What does Isaiah 17 verses 1 and 2 say? Let's go over there for a moment. The oracle concerning Damascus. Wow, that's Syria. That's where the big three are right now. This has got to be an end times prophecy, right? The oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The city is of Aror, I guess is how you say that, are forsaken. They will be flocks to lie down in and there will be no one to frighten them. And people quote this over and over again. Damascus is going to be made a ruinous heap. 
And I've been in one big conference in Canada where a gentleman stood up very dogmatically, a gentleman that you all know would know his name if I called it out, who basically told the eager conferees that the nation of Israel is about to take out Damascus. And when the nation of Israel takes out Damascus, and by the way, why would Israel want to take out Damascus? Because the big three have a presence in Damascus, which is in Syria. Israel, and he said it with such gusto and dogmatism, and it just sent electric excitement through everybody's spine because he made it sound like this is going to be fulfilled in the next split second. He says Israel is going to take out Damascus, and when Israel takes out Damascus, that is going to light the fuse, which is going to trigger the Gog Magog War. Now, I have to admit, that's exciting preaching. And I believe that Gog and Magog will invade the land of Israel in the last days. I, as I've tried to explain, take that as a tribulation event. But that's the first time I ever heard the prophecy that first, the first prophecies, what's going to happen is Israel is going to take out Damascus, and obviously that's going to happen because the big three are in Damascus, in Syria. They're meeting about it. And when Israel takes out Damascus, that's going to light the fuse, which is going to trigger the Gog-Magog War of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so I was wondering where he's getting this prophecy concerning Damascus. Well, there it is. It's right there in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. Because God himself says Damascus is about to be removed and to become a ruinous heap. So any second, you can expect Israel to take out Damascus to fulfill Isaiah 17, and then that will light the fuse, which will trigger the Gog-Magog war. You would not believe the number of people that teach this. Joel Rosenberg says, according to all major translations, the meaning of the text is clear. I mean, I can't second-guess your use of the passage? Nope, it's clear. Don't come into our conference ruining it all with your Bible study. According to all major translations, the meaning of the text is clear. The passage concerns the city of Damascus. The passage is a prophecy concerning the future of Damascus. Damascus will be utterly destroyed. Damascus will no longer be a livable, inhabitable city. Damascus will lie in ruins, thus saith the Lord. Joel Rosenberg goes on and says, When viewed together we can say the the following about the prophecies concerning Damascus found where? Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. These prophecies refer to a divine judgment by God against the city of Damascus. The prophecies refer to the utter catastrophic destruction of Damascus. Both are eschatological passages referring to end times events that have yet to occur. Isaiah's prophecy was given to him in 715 B.C., well after the conquering of Damascus by Tiglath-Pilizar. That's a false statement right there. I'll show you why 
next time we're together. Likewise, Jeremiah's prophecies occurred between 626 B.C. and 586 B.C., long after Tigalith Pileser conquered Damascus in 732 B.C. This has nothing to do with the past. Rosenberg says this is all completely future. Damascus has certainly been attacked, conquered, and burned at various points in history, including biblical history. But it is clear that the prophecies of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 have not been fulfilled. Damascus is, after all, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on the planet. We cannot be certain when these prophecies will happen, so at least he's not using the fuse analogy that I gave earlier. We cannot be certain when these prophecies will happen and the prophecies will be fulfilled. They come, they could come to pass before, during, or after the war of Gog Magog, spoken of Ezekiel 38 and 39, before, during, or after the rapture, before or during the tribulation. The text simply the texts simply do not say, so we cannot be definitive. So at least he's allowing a little wiggle room for the timing. It is possible that the prophecies could come to pass in the not-too-distant future, but they certainly will come to pass at some point before the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord. So Damascus is looked at as some sort of futuristic prophecy that factors into the end time scenario. And if you don't understand it that way, you don't have the complete picture of God. Excuse me, sir, I have a question. Can I ask a question? What's your name, Andy Woods? No, you can't ask a question, but other people can ask a question. Well, I'm going to ask my question anyway. Why do so many people believe that Isaiah 17 already happened in 732 B.C.? Shh, don't let that out of the bag. Because if you start talking that way, you've wrecked my scenario. And I've got to have Syria, an Israeli invasion of Syria, to be the fuse which is going to ignite the Gog-Magog war. And if you come along telling me that Isaiah 17 was already fulfilled, 731, 732 B.C. by Tigalith Pileser of Assyria, then you ruin my scenario. So you are persona non grata. So in the next session that I have with you, I'm going to try to show you that Isaiah 17 already happened. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a prophecy that already transpired 2,700 years ago. Damascus has already been made a ruinous heap doesn't say that Damascus will never be rebuilt like the prophecies concerning Babylon. So with that being said, we better stop. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth. Help us to think correctly about some of these prophecies that people are pushing today. Help us to be right dividers of your word in the last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. happy mini-intermission.